The second scripture reading tonight is Psalm 23. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Today we begin a new series on the Psalms called the Songs of God, and in the next several weeks, we will take a look at various Psalms that talk about different characteristics or attributes of God. Now, the Psalms were the Old Testament book of praises, and they were used in both private and public worship. And Psalms are unique in that they not only inform our mind, but they seek to form our heart. When word and melody come together, they transcend their functional value, don't they? Music has a way of moving us to the very core. And psychologists and scientists who have studied this stuff, they confirm that indeed music has a way of affecting us in ways words alone cannot. And that's why we have things like music therapy that works so well for certain people. Unfortunately, we don't have the sheet music for the Psalms we're gonna be looking at, but we do have the lyrics. And our goal as we unpack these Psalms in the coming weeks is to allow these words to shape our faith as we dig into what these psalmist has to say about God and our relationship with him. We want to wade into these words and allow them to capture our hearts, our imaginations, and move us to faith and faithfulness. Now, before we dive into this text, the psalm, let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to us. God, we give you thanks that your word is indeed live and active, and you desire to meet us even now to speak into our hearts, to correct, to teach, but also to encourage and to breathe new life and hope into our hearts. And so we come now, we offer our hearts to you, asking that you would do with our hearts as you please, that you would bring Christ into it and fill us with faith, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Anyone watch Jerry Maguire? Thank you, Jerry. In the movie Jerry Maguire, there's this really moving scene where Tom Cruise comes basically looking for his wife. Remember the scene? It begins with the word hello, and then she later on says, you had me at hello? I'm not going to go in there because I'm not Tom Cruise and I'm not very good at this stuff, but I'm going to 
Try to get into character a little bit. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. <laughs> Basically, he shows up at our house and he says, Tonight, our company did really well. In fact, very, very well. But it wasn't complete. Not nearly as complete because I couldn't share it with you. I couldn't hear your voice at this point. It's really moving. Trust me, if you haven't seen the movie, I'm like totally wrecking it. Can share it with you or laugh about it with you. I miss my wife. I love you. You complete me. Now, I remember watching this as a dude and thinking, wow, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I'm going to jot that down for future use, all you single guys, okay? This romantic idea that someone or something could complete us meet all of our longings and satisfy our every desire is actually a lie. When you place such expectations on people and things, you're going to be disappointed. And you've all been there. I know I have. And there's a biblical reason for this. Right after the creation account, we read that Adam and Eve basically forced God out of his rightful place the very center of everything, center of their heart, center of their relationship, their world, and worship. And ever since then, we have been left to fill the gap ourselves. And no matter how good, how true, how beautiful something or someone is, God cannot be replaced. The ache and the angst we often come across living in a broken world only highlights this tragedy that the Bible calls sin, our rebellion against God. And King David, the author of Psalm 23, he knew this. He didn't just know it in his head. He felt it. He lived in it. Even though he was king of Israel at the height of its economic strength and military power, he knew that somehow he was incomplete Despite all the power, wealth, fame, and everything else he had, he couldn't find a remedy for his restless heart. And this psalm hints at that. He says in verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He does not say, My power, my wealth, my fame are my shepherds, therefore I shall not want. Rather, he says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And we who live and work in Washington need to be reminded of this quite often, don't we? It's so easy to buy into the lie that somehow our next promotion or a successful project or graduation or relationship would somehow be the answer to the longings of our hearts. But David says, no, not really. And notice, David does not say, I do not lack. Rather, he says, I shall not lack. He's not saying, I have everything because he is my shepherd. But rather, he is saying, regardless of what I have or don't have, because I have the Lord, it is enough. Did you hear that? God is enough. But so often we tell ourselves a different narrative where we say, yeah, yeah, I get that, but I also want 
and we have a list of things. Those are good things. They're not bad in themselves. But let me ask you, is Christ enough? I love how A.W. Tozer, a preacher from a generation ago, put it. He said, the man who has God for his treasure has all things in one. For having the source of all things he has in one, all satisfaction, all pleasure, all delight. And the key that unlocks the floodgate of blessing is the word, my. Perhaps the most important word in the psalm. You see, David doesn't say the Lord is the shepherd, but he says the Lord is my shepherd. You see, it's in this relationship with him that we find him to be everything he promises to be. You see, if you're on the outside looking in, there's no way of knowing who Christ really is. All this talk of treasure and blessing and not lacking seems foreign. But if you are in a relationship with Christ, you know the truth of these words. One more thing before we move on to our main points. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. Did you catch that? The Lord is my shepherd. The glorious one is the humble one who delights in being our shepherd. As you know, shepherds were, glue, were basically blue-collar employees at the time, often working on the outskirts of a community. They didn't hold any office they weren't paid necessarily very well, but they worked hard. It was the most comprehensive and intimate of employment at the time. And the Lord, he identifies himself as our shepherd. And later in the New Testament, in the passage that we read from John 10, Jesus picks up on this theme and declares himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And this is the core of the Christian message. If you're here looking into Christian faith, you've heard it from the very beginning when Glenn sort of kicked us off. At the core of what we believe is a person who gave everything for us so that we can have everything beyond our imagination so that we would not lack. And David is just getting warmed up. In the rest of the psalm, he fills in the white space with color and texture to portray the fullness of God's kindness for us. At least he tries, and I think he does a very good job. So let's take a look. First, the shepherd. The shepherd. Perhaps as David looks back on his life, and recalls all the ways God cared for him, it reminded him of his nomadic days as a shepherd boy. Verse 2 says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Despite the desert-like conditions, the shepherd leads the sheep to green pastures and still waters to provide for them. 
And I don't think any of us here are shepherds or have experience tending sheep. At least I don't think so. So it's easy to miss the nuance of this metaphor. There are three things worth noting here. First, and the most obvious, is that he provides for our needs. He leads us to green pastures and still waters. He provides for our daily bread and daily grace. He sustains our faith. He provides community to be a part of, where we can come to share our lives with one another, fellow friends, for the journey. And most importantly, he provides us his spirit. His spirit who lives in our hearts and testifies to Christ and the truth of God's word. Second, he knows our limits. He knows our limits. Did you know sheep have an overeating disorder which often leads to death? So the shepherd, after a while, would have to lay the sheep down to say, that's enough. Otherwise, they'll continue to eat and die. Christ, he saves us from our appetite, our ambition, and our tendency to drive ourselves to the ground. He knows what's good for us and how much is good for us. And lastly, he accommodates for our fears. Sheep are often running, uh, afraid, deathly afraid of running water, and for a good reason. They can't swim. And even if they knew how to swim, their fur would soak up so much water that they wouldn't be able to swim. It's like you and I diving into the deep end with a fur coat. Maybe some of you could survive, but I don't think I can. Not very long. And so whenever sheep hear sound of running water, they would rather die of thirst than actually go and drink from it. So the shepherd would create a pool of standing water for the sheep to drink from. When you and I get to heaven, I think we'll praise God for many things, one of which is for all the things that he didn't allow in our life because he knew we couldn't handle them. He is our shepherd. He knows us. He cares for us by providing everything we need. There are, however, a few things sheep are really good at, okay? And one of those things is stubbornness. They are extremely stubborn. And because of this, they wander off constantly, not knowing the kind of danger they're in. And sheep are as defenseless as they come. They don't have a horn or sharp teeth or claw or even an armor-plated, like, you know, skin. They just eat. <laughs> and so when God calls us sheep, it looks really good as a precious moments figurine, but, <laughs> but really it's a backhanded compliment at best. <laughs> you know what he's saying? He's saying we are dumb like sheep. And our hearts are stubborn. And we easily buy into the lie that somehow the answer is not him, but somewhere out there. And we go away from him and find ourselves in all kinds of trouble and danger. Look, the power of sin is broken by the grace of God, but the presence of sin remains. 
That's why I love this, this hymn, Come That Fount. I think it captures our hearts so well. And this ought to be the prayer that we pray constantly. Let thy grace, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I feel this all the time. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for the courts above. And when we pray this prayer, the Lord receives us and he restores us and he leads us, verse 3, in the paths of righteousness. When we think of the word righteousness, we often think in terms of legal and moral perfection. And it's certainly the case, but that's really just one side of the coin. In Jewish versions of the Old Testament, the phrase righteous acts of God is translated as kindness, abundant benevolences, and gracious deliverance. That is, as one Hebrew scholar points out, because the word righteousness refers to covenantal faithfulness often resulting in rescuing those in distress and showing mercy to sinners. Did you catch that? Righteousness is not just moral perfection, but it is covenantal faithfulness that reaches out to a wayward sheep and rescues it. So when David prays in Psalm 35, 24, judge me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness, he is not saying, I'm blameless. God, see if you can find anything wrong. No, he's not praying that. Rather, he is praying and appealing to God's covenant mercy. So when David says, God leads us in the paths of righteousness, he's saying two things. Yes, God helps us to grow in our moral character, to be like Christ. But along the way, as we find ourselves in the ditches, he comes and he faithfully rescues us and he meets us with mercy and kindness that we do not deserve simply because we are in covenant relationship with him. And what good news that is. It's not about our performance, but it's about his grace toward us. And this is his righteousness that he would come to his delight. He's not, you know, saying, oh, you do this one more time and you're done. No, he comes and he delights in rescuing his people. He doesn't always lead us to green pastures, though. Sometimes he leads us to the valley of the shadow of death. And if he hasn't yet, he will. Because in the valley, he knows how to get our attention. And he draws us closer to him. Let's read verse 4 together. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. C.S. Lewis chose the metaphor shadowlands to reference this world, which is not the world as it should be, nor the world as it will be, but 
as the world that is, pretty broken, marred by sin. And we all feel the pain of living in a broken world from time to time. But for some of us, we're stuck. This is our home, or at least it feels like it. What are we to do when we find ourselves with pain and disappointment that will not go away? And regardless of what kind of good time we're having on the outside, we don't forget, and it takes us to a low place, a place that seems to separate us from others. And we feel we're alone. What do we do? Well, here's the good news, that our God, he dwells in the valley of death for you. And that's what the cross is all about. He came into this world, lived a perfect life, and he went up on a hill. And there he breathed his last and said, it is finished. And he entered into the lowest of valley. He, in fact, went to hell and back so that you and I would never have to walk through the valley of death. Only its shadow. Charles Spurgeon a great preacher from generations ago once said, when there is a shadow, there must be light. And I love what he's getting at here. He's saying that this low place, this dark place that we often find ourselves in is not our destination. It's only a means, a temporary holding place until we get home to glory. You see, Jesus takes us through the valley so that despite the difficulties we experience, that we would turn our eyes away from the things of this world and look to him to say, Lord, where are you? I can't feel you. I can't hear your voice. And then he shows up. You see, suffering, pain, and hardship can sometimes heighten our sense of his nearness. And I am glad as I look back at my own journey for these difficult times in life because it was then that he put a spotlight on the weaknesses of my faith, my character, and he didn't simply leave it there, but he said, let's work at it together. And those of you who have been in faith, who have been journeying with Christ for some time, you know this. You have testimonies of how God used the low place to change you. It's in the valley that he deepens our faith. We sort of sift through what we really believe and we realize, man, my faith is not that strong. It's in the valley that he grows our character. He teaches us to put one foot before the other. When it feels impossible to face another day, he teaches us and he guides us and he walks with us to another day. And it's in the valley that he refines our hope. You see, you and I, we think we have great hope in the life to come, but when you talk to people who have suffered, there's a different tone in their voice their anticipation of glory to come, it humbles me. 
And the Lord knows how to do that in the valley. He does his greatest work in the darkest places. But so often we're looking for a solution, a quick way out, rather than looking for a Savior to say, God, here I am. Do something with me because I know I'm not here by accident. You have led me here. So, Lord, teach me. Give me perseverance to learn the things that you have for me. You see, our suffering is not waste. It's never a waste. It achieves glory in us. And I pray that those of you who are in it now would not miss the opportunity to meet him where you are. And I don't say this lightly. I know it's difficult. I've sat with many of you, and I've heard your pain, seen your tears. And humbly, I bring this word before you and encourage you to believe and to allow these words to sow deep into your hearts so that you too can say, even in the valley, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Second, the host. Let's read verse 5 together. It says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. The picture here is of an extravagant banquet. But it's not just any banquet. It's a victory banquet honoring the champion, the victor before his captives. And David knows very well that he is unworthy of such honor. And all you have to do is read through his story. He wasn't always this great champion and victor who met Goliath in the valley, but he messed up. Quite a lot, in big ways. So what's going on here? How is David crowned with such honor before his enemies? Well, simply this. The host, he secured the victory for David. And he is now giving credit where credit is not due. When we put our faith in Christ... Our sin is transferred to him, and his righteousness is transferred to us. And we are, in the New Testament, declared holy. That's humbling enough, isn't it? But it doesn't end there. It says we are more than conquerors. Ooh, feeling uncomfortable. And then it says we are co-heirs reigning with Christ. And one day when he returns, he will say to you you and I, well done, my good and faithful servant. Who is good but God alone? Yet he will call us good, and he will crown us with honor and glory that will bring us to tears of gratitude, as if to say, God, I do not deserve this. I know myself. I imagine on that day we will sing to a familiar tune of Psalm 115, verse 1, 
Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, as we lay our crown at his feet and say, only you are good, only you are worthy. There's a second part to this feast, and that's the overflowing cup. And really, there are two parts to this cup. The host, he pours joy into our hearts in ways that are unimaginable to us. How can he do that? Because on the cross, Jesus drank the cup of wrath down to the dregs. And the empty cup of wrath itself is our joy. As he drinks that cup of wrath, he then turns and shows the Father and to us this empty cup to say it is done. There's nothing left. That's our source of great joy, isn't it? That we are no longer objects of wrath but mercy. That we are no longer slaves but children of God. And now all the promises are yes and amen because of him. But it doesn't end there. He pours joy into our cup. And it's not just a little bit or even to a point where he thinks we could handle it, but it's brimming over. You see, the glass is never half empty with God. He gives us grace upon grace. He gives us himself. But so often our eyes are fixed on these things on the side, and we look to that list of things that we want. Yeah, God, I got it, but I would like I pray that we would have eyes to see Christ, who is that treasure, who has been given to us fully and completely. David wraps up here in verse 6. He says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I wasn't a big Michael Bublé fan until I heard the song, I want to go home. You guys know that song? No? Should I sing it for you? Okay, that's not going to happen, okay? But I remember I was sitting at an airport returning from somewhere, and uh, this song came on, and it just struck a chord. I'm like, yes, I want to go home. Dorothy was right. There's no place like home. As crazy as my house is, and some of you have actually been there, what courage. What courage. For you to actually walk in, you know, to my house from all the toys that lurk around the corner. You just never know what you're going to step on. All the books that litter the floor and the sound of my boys fighting over basically anything and everything. I actually saw them fight about who was going to take a straw out of a trash can. Like, how, how does that happen? How do you look at a used straw in the trash can and begin to fight for it. It wasn't like, no, you get to use it. It was, no, I, it's mine. Talk about total depravity. <laughs> Our fallen, I'm like, yes, see my own sin. Anyway, and if you somehow came to our house and made it past all that and you actually used one of the bathrooms, you know the constant, lingering, weird smell that lives 
in the bath. I, I don't know what it is that causes that smell. I really don't. You just never know what happens behind closed doors when a three-year-old and a five-year-old come together to plan things. I have no idea. I have my guess, but I'm not going to go there. But it's home. It's home to me. I actually look forward to being there. Some of you are like, man, we need to pay for that guy's counseling. In all seriousness, it's home. It's predictable. It's secure. It's comfortable. It's where I belong. It's where I'm known. It's where I'm loved. And this idea of home, I think, appeals a bit more to us here in the city because of all the transients we witness. People come and go all the time. A revolving door of friends. As someone told me, it's like hugging a parade. People just keep moving. It's hard. But I think our longing for home is actually a deeper longing for the true Eden, a place that was made for us. And as we long to be there, we wonder if I'm ever going to make it. You look at your own track record. If you're anything like me, you're thinking, I'm done. There's no way I'm going to make it. But here in verse 6, David says, we have two guides to lead us through the rough terrain called life, goodness and mercy. And they will not just follow us, as the passage says, but I think the better translation is pursue us. They will pursue us all the days of my life. Now, if you're trying to run away from the Lord, this is the worst news you hear today. But if you're here thinking, has God forgotten me? Has he given up on me? I want you to know that the answer to both of those questions is no. His goodness and mercy are pursuing you even now. At this very moment. And God promised to bring us home, to be with him forever, and he will see to it that it is done. David begins this psalm with this idea of him not lacking and then he sort of comes back and ends with this idea of God's goodness and mercy. And the Hebrew word for mercy and lack actually sound alike. I don't think that's an accident. I think David is saying, look, the cure for your longing and the sense of lacking that you live with in your heart, the cure for that is God's mercy for you. And he wants to give it to you through his son. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you for David and his story, the song that speaks so loud to our aching hearts. And we know, God, that our answer, the hope 
The joy that we so much long for is not somehow out there removed from you, but it's actually you. You've been there all along giving yourself to us, and I pray that you would give us faith now to receive it. In Christ's name, amen.